0: For symptoms that affect 1 in 10 Americans, tinnitus, I'm sorry to say, has not really been a major symptom that's discussed in our program thus far. It's one of those symptoms that can range from a small nuisance that people often ignore, like low back pain or dizziness, or it can be extraordinarily disabling. And it deserves more attention than what we've afforded to it thus far on the podcast. Welcome back to Brainwaves, a podcast about neurology and medicine, and all the fascinating science and history that come with it. I'm your host, Jim Siegler, this week on our program, Tinnitus, the unwanted auditory perception that can be seen in patients with a variety of inner ear pathologies, with certain medications, cerebrovascular disease, and many other conditions, all of which we'll be reviewing on the program. Hopefully, by the end of our show, you'll have a decent framework with which you can approach this irritating and really disabling symptom. Stay with us. From the Latin, tenere, tinnitus really means a ringing. And like I mentioned earlier, 10 to 20% of the world's population has tinnitus, or they've experienced it at least once in their lifetimes. It's very pervasive. About 50 million Americans suffer from it, I bet. This is Professor Joseph Rochecker of Georgetown University Medical Center, who spoke about tinnitus in a 2016 oh. TED Talk. But the person in the painting is sort of covering his or her ears. And it's, it's, it doesn't help because the, the, the ring is actually generated in the brain. It's not a, a real sound that is there that the person hears. It's a phantom sound. So yeah. Luckily for most people, it's not really that much of a problem. 75% of people who are affected may sense this buzzing, hissing, or clicking sound periodically throughout the day and it makes no difference in their lives. For the remaining 25%, though, it can be a real nuisance. For some, it's even led to the contemplation and completion of suicide, as in the case of the Welsh boat skipper James Jones, who took his own life back in 2015. In just six months, James Ivor Jones's life disintegrated because of the conditions known as tinnitus and hypersensitivity. Driven mad by the constant and irritating sensation, and after having been told there was no cure for his condition... Mr. Jones leapt into a quarry, ending his life. Suffering. His family say he became depressed and simply unable to function. The word he used to describe what he was experiencing was torture. They really suffer very badly. They go to the extent that they have depression and suicidal thoughts. And We're told to just live with it and get on with it. I get emails every day from patients that are asking, is there not, not a cure? And there is no cure, unfortunately. Historians of medicine have also posited that Vincent van Gogh suffered from a similar constellation of disabling symptoms. ...become sickening bouts with dizziness, nausea, ringing in the ears, and hearing loss. While it was previously theorized that van Gogh had epilepsy, it seems more likely that he suffered from a problem now attributed to a pathologic overproduction of endolymph. In recent years, van Gogh's diagnosis of epilepsy has been changed to Meniere's disease. It's even thought that the tinnitus was so disabling for Van Gogh that this was the reason that he eventually mutilated his ear. And, like the Welsh boat skipper, James Jones, took his own life. Van Gogh suffered from dizziness and nausea so profound that he once wrote, quote, it so sickened me to move that nothing would have pleased me more than to have never woken again, end quote. Historians speculate that Van Gogh may have cut off his own ear... to. Experts like Professor Roshacker refer to tinnitus not as a ringing of the ear, but as a ringing of the brain. Patients will cover their ears in discomfort to prevent the transmission of sound, but without effect. When localizing the source of ringing in the brain, the lesion can occur within the ear itself due to conditions like otitis media, a perforated eardrum, or otosclerosis, which is an abnormal growth of bone in the middle ear. The lesion can occur in the 8th cranial nerve due to an acoustic schwannoma, vestibular neuritis, or nerve toxicity, because of drugs like gentamicin or furosemide. The lesion could abut the eighth nerve, as in a vascular malformation or arterial bruit. The lesion can occur in the brainstem, as we see in some cases of multiple sclerosis. And sometimes the tinnitus can be in your head because it's just in your head. A functional tinnitus. Historically, tinnitus has been classified as being either objective in origin meaning the sound can be perceived by others through examination, or subjective, meaning the sound is only perceived by the patient. Think of objective etiologies of tinnitus as those due to vascular malformations, carotid stenosis, valvular heart disease, palatomyoclonus, conditions in which there's a real sound being produced by the patient, a sound which you as the examiner can identify, and conversely, subjective tinnitus includes all the remaining etiologies, hearing loss, Lyme meningitis, Meniere's, presbycusis, so on and so forth. As we're going to discuss, subjective tinnitus is unfortunately more common and it's often related to hearing loss, for which the only treatment is supportive. In thinking about the causes of tinnitus before we get into any sort of testing, a comprehensive history must be taken, followed by a medical and neurologic exam to confirm whether the tinnitus could be objective or whether it's subjective. Has the tinnitus been slow and progressive, possibly associated with hearing loss on the affected side? as we might see with otosclerosis or presbycusis? Or is it associated with intermittent spells of non-positional vertigo, as we see in Meniere's? Did the symptoms begin after the patient began taking a certain medication, like cisplatin for squamous cell carcinoma? Did it begin suddenly in a patient with vascular risk factors? And this tinnitus is associated with a non-positional vertigo, or diplopia, which might suggest a posterior circulation stroke. Is the tinnitus unilateral? Is it associated with pain and fever, suggesting otitis media or externa? One question that I learned to ask in preparing for this talk is, is the tinnitus associated with autophony? Meaning, does the patient hear their own voice loudly in the affected ear? We see this in patients with the pallidus eustachian tube, or dehiscent semicircular canal. And if the patient hears their voice more loudly in that affected ear, do they also hear their own breathing more loudly? Is there audible breathing? If there is audible breathing, then the patient should have a nasal endoscopy to look for a pallidus eustachian tube. But if there's no audible breathing, the patient needs a CT of the temporal bone to look for that canal dehiscence. These are only examples of what you might be looking for, and this list of questions is by no means comprehensive. While you can find other important historical clues in the text that are referenced in our show notes, you should focus at a minimum on the onset of tinnitus, be it sudden, progressive, fluctuating, or pulsatile, whether there's associated symptoms of otopathology or vestibulopathy, hearing loss, vertigo, dizziness, nausea, vomiting, oscillopsia, Is there a change in medications? And for the neurologists in the audience, any evidence of other neurologic dysfunction? Multiple cranial neuropathies, suggesting a subarachnoid space process. Prior optic neuritis, to suggest multiple sclerosis. Oral contraceptive use, or a hypercoagulable state, which might suggest a lateral venous sinus thrombosis. Once you've obtained your history, are there any relevant medications that could be particularly ototoxic? We've mentioned some of these briefly, NSAIDs, aspirin, some antibiotics, but others also stand out. Among the antibiotic class, I'd be looking out for things like erythromycin, vancomycin, aminoglycosides like gentamicin, and tetracycline. As a brief aside, intratympanic gentamicin injections are used to treat conditions in which there is hyperactive vestibular function, conditions like Meniere's disease, Certain chemotherapeutics are also ototoxic, drugs like cisplatin, methotrexate, vincristine, Loop diuretics may also be toxic. And lastly, tricyclic antidepressants, quinine, and heavy metals can also cause a vestibulopathy, with or without tinnitus. When thinking of the time frame next in which tinnitus can occur, some medications act more immediately than others, For example, loop diuretics and NSAIDs can cause rapid and often reversible tinnitus or vestibulopathy, whereas chemotherapeutic agents and gentamicin may manifest with ototoxicity after weeks or months of use, and these symptoms can be permanent. So I'd review the patient's medication list for recent as well as more remote use of potentially ototoxic drugs. Moving on to your exam... I'd be foolish to say that you should focus on your neuro exam and your cranial nerves. You still need to do a head-to-toe assessment of the patient. Is your patient obese, or have they gained weight recently? Features that are associated with idiopathic intracranial hypertension as the cause of tinnitus. Does the patient have abnormal heart sounds, such as a harsh systolic murmur, at the right upper sternal border, which might suggest aortic stenosis? Are there carotid bruis or bruis overlying the periauricular area, which you might detect in 10-20% to of patients with a pulsatile tinnitus. If you compress the side of the neck when there is unilateral tinnitus, does it extinguish the sound? If so, that might suggest a venous abnormality, something like a sigmoid sinus diverticulum, which is actually not that uncommon. Other venous abnormalities include a jugular bulb condylar vein, or semicircular canal dehiscence. If neck compression does not relieve the pulsatile tinnitus, then it's more suggestive of an arterial pathology, like carotid stenosis. On your exam, can you visualize the tympanic membrane? Or is there an excess buildup of serumen Is the tympanic membrane intact? Is it bulging, erythematous, or perforated? Do you see normal bony structures behind the tympanic membrane? Inside the oropharynx, is palatal elevation normal? Or do you see rhythmic twitching, as in palatal myoclonus? Then of course you have your neuroexam. Are there signs of meningismus, which could suggest a subarachnoid space process, like an infectious or aseptic meningitis or neurosarcoidosis? Is there papilledema, which could indicate intracranial hypertension due to a number of causes, but could also suggest a transverse sinus stenosis or venous sinus thrombosis? Extraocular movement abnormalities suggest a wide range of intracranial pathology, and with tinnitus, this would certainly warrant neuroimaging. And of course, is there hearing impairment on formal testing, Now, hearing is very important here, so let's take a moment to discuss how hearing impairment kind of weaves in with tinnitus. Of course, after your hearing assessment, you'll be expected to complete the remainder of your neuro exam, including an evaluation of motor power and sensation, reflexes, coordination, and gait. But let's go to the hearing exam. Regarding loss of hearing, it should not be surprising that, on a population scale, tinnitus more commonly results from the same conditions which cause hearing loss – About 80% of patients actually have concomitant hearing loss with tinnitus. Loss of hearing for these patients represents a similar pathologic reorganization of central nervous system circuitry as we see with phantom limb pain and Anton's or charles Bonnet syndrome. In neurology and otolaryngology, when we encounter hearing loss, our differential is guided by whether the hearing loss is due to a sensory neural process or if it's conductive. Now, conductive hearing loss is due to outer ear pathologies Fluid in the ear, serum impaction, perforated eardrum, otosclerosis, that kind of stuff. Conversely, sensorineural hearing loss is due to pathology of the inner ear or the 8th cranial nerve. Conditions like noise-induced hearing loss, which is the most common acquired cause of sensorineural hearing impairment, or presbycusis, which we see frequently with aging. Clinically, we distinguish the two sources of hearing loss using the Weber and Rene tests. And um, so you're going to hear a buzzing. I want you to tell me which position it is louder in. In the Weber test, the tuning fork is struck and placed on the vertex or the middle of the forehead. In a normal patient, sound transmits through the skull symmetrically and sound is perceived in both ears as similar. So can you tell me whether you hear the sound loudest in your left ear, your right ear, or whether you can hear it in the middle? In a patient who has sensorineural hearing loss, the sound is not perceived as clearly on the affected side because the patient lacks the intact apparatus for relaying that sensory information. In a patient who has conductive hearing loss, ironically, the sound is amplified in the affected ear. This is because the middle and external ear functions are impaired, often resulting in impairment of physiologic noise suppression vis-a-vis the stapedius. Therefore, the lack of normal suppression of ambient sound on the side with conductive loss will result in a perception of louder sound with the tuning fork. Moving on to the Rene test, the tuning fork is struck and then applied to the mastoid bone just posterior to the ear. The patient should hear the sound of the vibrating fork when it's against the bone, but as soon as the sound disappears, the fork is quickly directed at the external acoustic meatus and the patient is asked if they can still hear the sound. The Rene test is considered positive if the patient still hears the sound of the tuning fork when it's placed outside the ear, indicating that air conduction is greater than bone conduction. I'll say that again. Air conduction in this situation is better than bone conduction, and this is a normal finding. As a quick aside, I hate when people say that the Renee test was positive on the right because that's not always clear to me that they know what that means. So just describe what you find. Air conduction is greater than bone conduction on the right. In a pathologic state with conductive hearing loss, there's greater bone conduction than air conduction, and the patient will not appreciate the sound of the tuning fork after it's removed from the mastoid process and then placed outside the ear. Important to note is that only the Weber test can be used to identify sensory neural hearing loss, as the Renee test is still going to be positive, meaning normal, in a patient who has sensory neural impairment. And obviously, in a patient with any abnormality on formal testing or when the history suggests hearing impairment, formal audiometric testing should be pursued to assist in your diagnosis. So, what else can you do besides your exam? And more importantly, when should you obtain brain imaging or vascular imaging? There are a number of good papers out there with proposed algorithms as to when one should get an MRI or CTA or an MRA. And for the most part, when a patient has subjective unilateral tinnitus, this warrants an MRI. And again, subjective tinnitus means you can't hear what the patient hears. There's no myoclonus, there's no arterial bruis, there's normal heart sounds. When a patient has this subjective tinnitus and only one ear is affected by the tinnitus, this is a situation to get an MRI. And the MRI should be done with and without contrast, with thin cuts through the internal acoustic canal. You're thinking about things like a vestibular schwannoma. So an MRI should help reveal these potential etiologies. With the vestibular schwannoma or meningioma the IAC, these typically homogeneously enhance. And you'll recall that neurofibromatosis type 2 is an autosomal dominant condition in which the NF2 gene on chromosome 22 is abnormal, and it can result in bilateral vestibular schwannomas or multiple meningiomas or ependymomas. Also on the MRI... You'll be looking for evidence of demyelination as you'd see in multiple sclerosis or evidence of prior stroke in the cochlear nucleus for your patient who has vascular risk factors this patient should have a known history of prior stroke and often the tinnitus will be accompanied by other symptoms like vertigo and possibly long track signs the mri can help you recognize iah if you happen to find an empty cella which is seen in 70 to 80 percent of patients who have pseudotumor cerebri or the patient may have tortuous optic nerves flattened globes or a stenotic transverse sinus. So the MRI is useful in identifying the treatable intracranial pathologies in appropriate circumstances. In addition to getting brain imaging for unilateral tinnitus, experts recommend that brain imaging be obtained whenever there's objective tinnitus that could localize to the central nervous system. For example, myoclonus. You might remember that this is often due to a lesion of the central tegmental tract. MRI would be very useful here especially when you're looking for evidence of demyelination. And finally, vascular imaging should be obtained whenever there is pulsatile tinnitus. Regarding the vascular imaging modality of choice, arterial and venous imaging are recommended by most experts. But which modality? CT or MR? It's not as if CTA and CTV are better than MRA and MRV for all causes of tinnitus, or that MRA is better than CTA. In my own practice, I tend to prefer CTA due to the superior spatial resolution of the blood vessels, the lower probability of motion artifact, and the better visualization of the temporal bones for the radiologists. I'm not an expert at interpreting temporal bone abnormalities, so I'll leave this up to them. MRI is obviously the modality of choice when looking for parenchymal abnormalities like schwannomas, MS plaques, and so forth, so often patients will get multiple types of imaging. Now that we've covered the major causes of tinnitus and an algorithmic approach to this chief complaint, let's quickly review the treatment options. Obviously, when you've identified approximate etiology, the patient has IIH for example, your treatment will be targeted to that particular process. For symptomatic relief in a patient who's had noise-induced hearing loss and the tinnitus is now bothersome for example, a number of tricyclic antidepressants and benzodiazepines have been reported in observational studies to provide patients with some degree of relief. Nortriptyline and amitriptyline, as well as clonazepam, seem to be helpful at treating some of these symptoms. In one early randomized placebo-controlled clinical trial of nortriptyline versus placebo, patients who were treated for 12 weeks with nortriptyline had improvement in their depressive symptoms as well as the tinnitus loudness. Unfortunately, in a later review of 69 clinical trials for the treatment of tinnitus, there appeared to be no consistent effect with treatment over placebo the benefit was largely driven by the significant placebo effect of published studies. Even with nortriptyline, which, as I had mentioned earlier in the program, can be vestibulotoxic, the better outcomes that are seen with treatment over placebo are confounded by the fact that both groups seem to improve to a similar degree. To date, lidocaine remains the only effective pharmacologic treatment of tinnitus, and it's limited by the fact that it can only be given intravenously, in addition to having a short half-life. Non-pharmacologic interventions, such as tinnitus retraining therapy, are also promising options for some patients, but retraining therapy takes an average of 18 months before benefits become consistent. And obviously, you should be focusing on the treatment of the patient's comorbid neurologic and psychiatric symptoms, which are a priority for the care of these patients. So that was a lot. Let's recap. Tinnitus encompasses a wide range of neurologic, otologic, and vascular pathologies, and it can produce mild, non-disabling symptoms, or it can drive people mad. Obtaining a thorough history about symptom onset, associated symptoms, especially whether there's loss or impairment of hearing, and tinnitus laterality and pulsatility, these are critical for narrowing your differential diagnosis, and they play a major role as to whether you're going to pursue any kind of imaging. On exam, are you able to appreciate the sound? meaning is it objective tinnitus, or is the tinnitus subjective? Are there abnormal heart, carotid, or periuricular sounds, abnormal palatal movements? Is there loss of hearing? And with compression of the ipsilateral neck and pulsatile tinnitus, does it extinguish the sound? As far as imaging goes, brain imaging is recommended by experts when there is unilateral subjective tinnitus and a normal ear exam, or if there is continuous objective tinnitus, again meaning that you can appreciate the sound that's perceived by the patient. Vascular imaging, ideally with CTA and CTV, should almost always be performed in unilateral pulsatile tinnitus. One might also consider testing for causes of high-output heart failure in pulsatile tinnitus, looking for things like anemia, hyperthyroidism, and looking for structural cardiac changes with an echocardiogram. And for me, whenever I have a doubt, I have a low threshold to prefer these patients for ENT evaluation, for formal audiometric testing, and for a second opinion. And that's about it for our program on Brainwaves this week. For the patients in the audience, you can find more resources on tinnitus through the American Tinnitus Association at ata.org and HearUSA at hearusa.com, which offers a large selection of hearing aids and provides information on the available supportive treatment for hearing impairment. This week's episode of the Brainwaves podcast was produced by myself, Jim Siegler. Our show was produced out of Studio 3 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, with music courtesy of Andrew Sacco, John Watts, Kai Ingle, Lovira, Patches, and Kevin McLeod under a Creative Commons license. Sound effects were by Mike Koenig and Daniel Simeon. For more information on what was discussed in the show, as always, please take a look at the show notes for the references to the highest-yield literature on the topics, and follow us on Twitter at Brainwaves Audio. I'm Jim Siegler. Talk to you soon.